don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This is Social Minds, the UK's first dedicated social media marketing podcast brought to you by Social Chain. I'm Theo. And I'm Eve. And each week we'll be joined by a host of progressive minds to learn the unique and innovative ways that social media is being used around the world. On this podcast, we'll be discussing the latest developments across social and what they mean for us all. And if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe to get new episodes every week. This week on Social Minds. You no, know, it's finding that balance between freedom of creation, freedom of expression, and then fair use. Yeah. We sat down for another very special episode of Social Minds at Breaking Social, where myself and Theo covered all the top social media stories to come out of March. Yeah, absolutely loads has happened this month. We spoke about Instagram checkout, Article 13, which came out a few days before recording this episode, and also... The goings on with TV at the moment, Apple TV has launched, Netflix are in the frame, but where do traditional broadcasters lie? We also took some questions from our listeners we for did. the first we time, did, in fact, yes. uh, which is uh, very exciting. It's hopefully something we'll do a lot more from now on. Go where the attention is. It might be social today. It might be something else tomorrow. So, All this and more coming up. Eve, we're back again. We it's are. March and they have done the unthinkable and given us a third segment to ourselves on the podcast. I know. What were they thinking? I know. I know. <laughs> so we're approaching Easter. And well, let me just say, let me. well, we're not really approaching Easter. We're still a way off. But a shitload has happened in social media mm-hmm. since we spoke last. And we'll start with Instagram Checkout, which launched for us, I'd say, a couple of weeks ago yeah. or maybe about a week ago. Yeah. And this has been the news that is sort of captivated the social media world at the moment. And it is the news that Instagram has launched Checkout, which is to be a tool, a built-in feature that will allow you to purchase and order through the app yeah. without going to any third-party websites as you do at the moment. So for shoppable tags at the moment, if you were to click on a shoppable tag uh, for, say, Puma, you'd be taken to the Puma website and you could do your purchase and orders there. Yeah, yeah. At the moment, essentially, there's no difference between shopping online and shopping uh, on Instagram. People still buy things on Instagram, but like you said, it takes you to the retailer's website and then you're left with all the normal steps about having to choose your product, add your size, the colour, put it in your bag, view the bag, go exactly. to checkout, create an account, enter your details, etc., etc. Um, and on mobile as well, you can see how long sometimes it takes the page to load. So a lot of people get frustrated at that point and abandon their shopping carts and don't end up buying it. I know it happens to me all the time. And you've put this consumer journey at about eight steps, haven't you? Yeah, it's about eight to ten, depending on like the retailer. Say like if you've already got an account with them, you can skip that step. But mm, mm. Um, yeah, it's about eight to ten. So that's for me getting out my phone, going on the again the Puma Instagram page, clicking on a pair of trainers, going to the website, being able to type in the size and so on and so forth. But yeah. this this is revolutionary for social commerce, isn't yeah. it? Oh, because yeah. essentially this is Instagram saying, look. You don't need to go to a website. You can do everything within app. You can choose, you know, the items in your basket. You can manage your order. And this is what they've been trying to realize for mm-hmm. absolutely years now with social yeah. commerce. Yeah. And it's- what I think is the most convenient part about it is so you'll still have to um, like choose your product and stuff and add it to your bag. But instead of having to create a different account and enter your details sort of for every different retailer, it's Instagram who saves your details. Mm. So once you've done it once, your details are saved, you can just go straight through and purchase immediately on pretty much any retailer that is using the feature. 
Um, so it's taking what, like eight to 10 steps to about three to four. Instantly, people who are going to be thinking, people, you know, people who have a, a disposition for, you know, retail therapy are going to be thinking, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's great news for Facebook. It's terrible news for everyone else's bank accounts. I'm actually really excited about this because there's so many times when I'm on Instagram where I'll, I'll see, uh, you know, clothes and, and, and items from brands I've never heard of. You know, they might be sort of independent shops or Etsy accounts or whatever. Mm. And the experience you sometimes get, and let's, let's you know, take this away from like the big brands. The experience you sometimes get when you go onto those websites is, first of all, it's sometimes they're not optimised for mobile. Yeah. They're, you know, which, which is a bit ironic seeing as they're on Instagram, mm. but it just becomes like a really clunky process. And I, for one, have on so many occasions abandoned yeah. a purchase yeah. for that reason. It's the like frustration of going from something that's really slick and mm. easy to use to something mm. that's the complete opposite. You just think, oh God, sod this, I can't be bothered. And also it's a it's a kink in the sort of user experience in a way, isn't it? Because I find that when people send me external links to YouTube or WhatsApp, I'm almost sometimes a bit reluctant to go out of the app because I know it's going to be two steps coming back. Yeah, So yeah. by keeping everything within the app, I mean, like we said, this is absolutely massive for them. Yeah. Um, you pulled some stats on this and you actually said that 130 million Instagram users at the moment use shoppable tags. Yeah, every month, which is an insane amount of people. It's not really that surprising. Um considering you know how easy it is to use mm, and mm. how much it complements the the content on Instagram um, and we always say it's the best platform for commerce and this is just another step in the right direction um, but for Facebook especially so in their 2019 roadmap they said that commerce is going to be a key fixture for them mm, um, mm. and Instagram is what they're using to to make that happen um, so if you think about it at the moment um it's only with a small group of brands and retailers uh, in the US, I think. But if that goes well, they'll expand it further out. Um, and they actually charge those retailers a small fee mm. for using the feature, just opening up a massive revenue stream for Facebook. Uh, some retailers, I don't know how happy they'll be about having to pay a fee. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, if that is how your customers want to buy things, if that's the level they're going to come to expect, like that level of convenience, then they might be left with little choice. And it's the payoff in revenue, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah, nobody wants to pay a small fee, but I mean, we could see this being... A a huge sort of revenue driver for some of these brands. So yeah. you mentioned the uh, 20 or so brands who have signed up to them. So it's Adidas, Nike, Burberry, a mm. few others, people that are very popular on Instagram. Um, and this is just, I'm, I, I for one, am really, really excited about this change. Yeah. And as well, you know, if we can give a bit of context to this as well, um, this is something, social commerce is something we've been talking about for ages. Mm. And even before this, I think a few weeks before that, when Instagram uh, launched a donation sticker, they have been making those little steps and tweaks to get people used to the idea of putting their bank account details on yeah. Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, in, in your head, you could be thinking, oh, I'd never do that. You know, that's, that's a completely stupid idea. But it is... You know, when convenience is at stake, yeah, of course you will. You, will. You, will. you know, like you do Uber, like you do any other app that you use, Deliveroo, whatever. Yeah. And you're right, they've been drip feeding it to us really slowly. Like shoppable tags, I think, were first tested in 2016. Mm. And I think mm. they launched in 2017 then. And then it's been like, you know, then they got added to uh, stories, then they got added to video posts. And, and yeah, you're right, it's just bit by bit, they're getting us more and more used to it. What I think is really interesting is the way it sort of makes the retailer's website completely useless. Yes, 
Yes. So There's what, no need for it. Exactly. If you, if you can buy in the app without having to go to the website, mm. why would you need a website? Yeah, yeah, of course. It'd be interesting to see post that how much of the audience you know, does land on a website with that in mind yeah. because a lot of people will go to a brand's Instagram page to check out their yeah, new ranges, their clothes and, and, and whatnot, won't definitely. they? Definitely. Like people do still Google search for um, like fashion retailers and things like that, but you're more likely to enter in the, the full web address if you mm. know it and just mm. go straight there. But if you're already seeing it on Instagram, that consider that like the brand's first touch point. Yep. If the first touch point is also the last touch point, it just, it makes it so much easier. And it, yeah, it completely removes the need for a website. So I'll be curious to see maybe in like a year, two years time, mm. how many retailers still invest that much into their websites. I completely agree. And something that came just before this as well, which sort of acted as a precursor, um, was the huge news stories around creator accounts yeah. and influencers as well. So this was something Instagram launched. Uh, so I think they got a group of uh, high-profile influencers together and said, we're basically launching these new creator accounts, which will be completely different from the normal accounts. And they'll have sort of business tools. You know, they're really recognizing influencer marketing as a legitimate business. So, yeah. um, you know, advice on helping to grow your channel I think and actual analytics and and stuff like that. Yeah, so. it's it's little features that sort of replicate what you'd expect a public figure to have on their website, mm, like a way mm. to make inquiries, a way to contact. Uh, you've got your analytics all there, your content is there, whatever that is, be it products or or just posts. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And sort of if you look at the creator accounts update and now the checkout with Instagram updates separately, it'd be very easy to assume that just one was about influencer marketing and the other one was about commerce. But sort of on closer inspection, you can see that it's all part of a ploy um, of Facebook's wider goal to remove the competition, which is mm. not just other social media platforms, it's all other websites. Mm. So mm. if like, so we know that dwell time is a really lucrative metric for mm. Facebook. Mm -hmm. So their goal has always been to keep you on their platforms for as long as possible. Um, but actually their very end goal is to stop you from leaving at all. Mm. Um, mm. So if they give, you know, creators, retailers, brands, users, everything they need in one easy place, mm. um, then yeah, they're essentially making the need to go anywhere else useless. I really do stand by the fact that I think no other social media platform aligns influencer marketing and social commerce in the way Instagram does. No. And I know they've tried to re replicate some of these features on Facebook. And I think, you know, it would be naive not to think that eventually Facebook will get some form of shoppable uh, you know, this this sort of function as well, where yeah. you can buy and purchase within the app. I mean, we've already seen with Marketplace, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's clear that this is where it's going to be. Um, I'm really interested eventually to see uh, how Amazon sort of perceives these kind of changes mm. as well, because, they're, you know, it, it's, it's we're, we're moving more to a system where we talk about these big tech platforms. And it's something very much that happens in China where you've got, you know, your WeChat, which, you know, handles payments and messaging. You've got uh, ByteDance and all these big players mm. who have just got these sort of services divvied up between them. Yeah. It seems like everybody wants a bit of everything. And now yeah. Amazon's definitely got the capability. If you look at what, they, um, what they've been doing with Snapchat, which again happened months ago, still mm. just in the US. Um, and we haven't really heard a lot uh, on that front about updates mm. to that or if they're mm. planning on rolling it out to more countries, mm. if they're making it um, available to more users. And I think that's where Amazon always fails a little bit, always keeps behind Facebook because they're just not as fast. Yeah. Uh, like Facebook, if you look at the timeline between when they started 
when they put shoppable tags on Instagram to where we are now, yeah. it's like there's something happening every three to four months. Exactly, exactly. And Amazon just can't keep up with that pace. But they, they do have the capabilities. It is like surprise launch uh, after surprise launch after surprise launch. Yeah. And what has also been a surprise has been Article 13. <laughs> Segway. So, yeah, I, I thought I'd drop a few of these in because I know you guys and the listeners, I hope, love my segues. So Article 13, <laughs> uh, which was made, well, it's not yet been made law, I believe, has it? It's sort of in the final stages, but they're very much expecting it to be passed. Yeah, no, so they, they have passed the vote, um, the vote passed, but it's um, a case of putting in legislation over the next two years. So now be. that member states have two years to to implement the law in their own country. Mm, but yeah, mm. the EU has passed it. So this is all to, so to add a bit of context to this, Article 13, a lot of people will know it as this uh, proposed meme ban. Yeah. And this is all about this new uh, copyright directive from the EU, uh, which is all, is there's a lot of conversation around the EU, but for, it seems for a moment we've taken it away from Brexit. <laughs> and now we're talking about this, you know, and the EU has sort of become the big bad wolf again, in a way. Um, so... Article 13, essentially the workings of it as I that I understand it is it's a new copyright directive, it's a new clause within this copyright directive, I should say, um, that is essentially putting the microscope on copyrighted content mm. that gets uploaded to tech platforms, so yeah. YouTube, Facebook and whatnot. And, and they're calling it a meme ban um, because when you see, I suppose, content from your favorite creators, it is often the case that they'll include uh, music or videos from elsewhere. Now, Article 13, as I know it, is basically saying that that content is all copyrighted and the responsibility of policing that lies with the platforms. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at like the purpose behind it, it's actually quite noble. Like they, They're saying its goal is to just spread... Um, earnings from that kind of content uh, evenly between the people who created it. So like uh, musicians, mm, artists, mm -hmm. journalists, um, spread that evenly between them and the platforms because at the moment the platforms get most of it, yeah. which is fair enough. Um, the problem and why it's been so controversial is because it doesn't seem very compatible with other um, law, like similar copyright law at the minute. Mm, and mm. Uh, if you look at... so. So the way that platforms would have to do it is by implementing technology that can tell the difference between copyrighted content that's okay mm -hmm, and copyrighted mm -hmm. content that's not okay. Mm -hmm. um, now, YouTube already has something really similar to that, content ID, um, which is how they tell the difference between um, like copyrighted music videos and, uh, you know, they're very strict about putting on uh, you know, licensed tracks mm -hmm. on, the, on the back mm -hmm. of music. But, you know, there, there are uh, videos that are okay. That's why there's so many music videos on that platform. Um, and that's they're, they're known as upload filters, right? So the, di uh, the problem with upload filters is that they're not always good at telling the difference. Mm -hmm. So technically mm -hmm. under Article 13, memes are still legal. I know mm -hmm. it's been called the meme ban, but they're actually fine. Yeah. Um, so it's anything that has copyrighted content for the sake of like parody or comedy or pastiche, uh, which memes and GIFs fall under. Mm -hmm. But it's, mm -hmm. you know, how can upload filters tell the difference then between uh, a GIF that's fine and something that's actually copyrighted and should yeah. be banned, um, which is what's got people worried. The lines blur completely, don't they? It's a sort of, uh, you think there's a kind of, the approach is almost that, uh, you know, the, the filters will become so strict that nothing will pass through. And yeah. that's been where the worries come from, hasn't it? Yeah. Because how do you determine, you know, what is co uh, protected under copyright? What isn't protected under copyright? It's sort of yeah. a... 
it seems like a kind of short-sighted approach to policing what should be, you know, uh, like you said, a noble cause. But I think you only need to look at who's on which side of the argument. So the people against this include, you know, Wikipedia's founders, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, who yeah. said, you know, it's going to be like the end of the internet as we know it. So mm. obviously the World Wide Web founder. And the people supporting it is like Sir Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, you've got the musicians and you've got the record labels on the other side. Yeah. But I've, I've got... Um, I've got a kind of strong opinion on this, not being a creator myself, but I feel there's a sort of respect among creators with these channels in mind that, you know, we influence one another with content and, con and you know, the availability of content has become, you know, quite a great thing within the internet in terms of sharing ideas, in terms of now, you know, I completely don't believe in music piracy at all, you know, which is great that we've got streaming platforms, although, uh, you know, how much money of that goes to the artists is, is always something that's up for debate. Mm -hmm. um, but with this, it just tends to, it seems a bit kind of uh, grabbing in ways. And, and we need to remember that, you know, people like, uh, you know, many of the new artists who have come up have actually made a name for themselves on YouTube and it's been yeah. down to that sort of sharing of, of content and ideas and video yeah. and music and so, everything. So a really good example of this, you wouldn't you wouldn't know, but almost every single piece of content on the internet is copyrighted to an extent. Mm -hmm. So things like, like a 10 second video of you lip syncing a Taylor Swift song, that's mm -hmm. copyrighted. There's like a gif of a footballer scoring a goal, that's also copyrighted. Mm -hmm. it, it's like really small things you don't even notice. Um, and you're so right about artists actually benefiting from that sometimes. Mm -hmm. so look at TikTok, you know, Barking, yeah. that song, that yeah. song only got massive after it became one of the like most top used um, song clips on TikTok. And these are like lip sync challenges yeah, that people it, it was do, part of they? a massive yeah. challenge and that made the song famous. Like yeah. It only got big like what, like two, three years after its first release. Exactly. So that's actually really beneficial for um, the artist in that case. I completely agree. If you take the example of a song that has been lip synced on YouTube or on TikTok, and shared by millions of people, millions of people are doing yeah. it. That is only advertising that song. That's only bringing that song to more and more people yeah. and encouraging virality. And I think that is something that's so important to look at in social media now. And, and this and this free flow of information and free flow of content. Mm. Now, of course, there should be uh, you know limits in place and there should be rules set up so that everybody is paid equally. Yeah. But at the same time. It's a very kind of backwards approach for me looking yeah, at it. It's quite a sort of... But it doesn't always help out the underdog. Um, so we've got some, some stats here. Um, so companies are only exempt from Article 13 if they fall into three of these categories. They've been online for three years or less. Um, they have a turnover of less than 10 million euros annually and they have less than 5 million monthly visitors. That actually leaves a lot of sites um, who still would have to follow it, even though they're quite small. Mm, so you've got mm. almost like this this middle section of, um, so I use, you know, the website DeviantArt yes, as an example. Yes. It's like very much for small artists to share their work. Um, but a lot of the content on, on there would fall, you know, filed to mm. these new laws. Um, so if they basically don't have enough money to pay for tech like upload filters, um, which is the only way that they'll be able to police that content. Um, but they also don't have, you know, enough money, enough visitors, they're not big enough um, to be exempt from Article 13. Mm, mm. Then 
they're they're kind of stuck in the middle. A lot of them are saying that they're worried they might have to shut down yeah. because they can't afford the solution either way. And actually, if you look, so like YouTube's content ID, so Google already has this technology, they could actually benefit from this quite a lot because mm. they'll be looking now to sell that tech yes. to other websites yes. and other big platforms. So they'll actually benefit quite a lot from it, even though, like I said, it doesn't always work. Uh, I was watching a video the other day that said bird song and cats purring, that kind of noise, the um, automated tools sometimes pick that up and mistake it as a music track. So content like that gets flagged because they, they're they just completely mistaken it for someone else. It's not infallible whatsoever, is yeah. it? This is something that Wired touched on really, really well that we, that we saw in there. And also, you know, reading some of the, the stuff around Article 13 on there as well, the response to the response worldwide from like creators and there's been protests in the street in Germany and mm. people have been getting really riled up about yeah. it and it reminds me of uh, not GDPR the net neutrality argument that yeah. happened in the US yeah and it comes back to the same thing it's all about like are we censoring the internet? Yeah. You know, it's finding that balance between freedom of creation, freedom of expression, and then fair use yeah. of yeah. content. And apart from that as well, as well as the, the copyright argument, because as well I feel strongly because, you know, if you look at copyright and you look at like the spread of money, and I think, you know, on one side of the argument, you'll have artists who say, yeah, we should get paid for, you know, what we do. But the amount of people that, that money filters through and goes through, you know, and all the intermediaries and, you know, in the middle and, and copyright companies and publishing companies and stuff. I mm. wonder how many creators are really, really behind this at the end of the day who yeah. aren't, say, Sir Paul McCartney. Um, I don't think they realise how much it would impact everything. Mm, like, I, mm. It's completely understandable for them to want to be paid for their work fairly. That's fine. But, yeah. you know, they're just consumers at the end of the day as well their users I think they'll step, be pretty exactly, annoyed yeah. if, it, if it changes the whole fabric of the platforms that we use and I think to, to for a final point on this as well there's sort of a where where this sort of sits in the landscape because this is very much uh this is a theme that's been going on for a while uh involving governments and stuff mm -hmm. and it is the it's looking more and more like the big US tech platforms and firms and the European lawmakers and the worldwide yeah. lawmakers are saying, no, we've had enough of this. This is too much. You are too powerful. You are too this. Yeah. We're going to bring you down. So it's kind of like a guerrilla way, in my opinion. Of, yeah, uh, I like the way that Wired phrased it, actually. It's meant to be um, the tech companies are meant to be the big bad wolf and the lawmakers are meant to be like championing the underdog. And he said they're calling it like a David versus Goliath situation, but it's more like a Goliath, Goliath. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> like they're just as bad. I completely. I mean, the question on everybody's lips is, you know, when an article 50 eventually gets triggered and when we do live the, the EU, will this apply to the UK? Yeah, so I was this? wondering that. I was looking into it a bit and it occurred to me, um, it's kind of obvious now when you think about it, but th these companies are based in America, aren't they? Yeah. So they're not in the EU anyway. So it doesn't just apply to those in the EU. This is interesting. Yeah, it'll apply to everyone. I think, I think that's what it means when it says member states have to apply it to their own legislation within two years. And they've got two years to do that, yeah, haven't yeah, they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we... A developing story, I suppose you could call it, that we'll, we'll be able to see. Uh, but another yeah. developing story, again, another segue, <laughs> is the is the conversation around online TV that's really been taken off recently. Yeah. Um, and we sort of begin this discussion with the stat that on-demand uh, TV su subscription services grew to 613.3 million in 2018, so that's up 27%. While cable subscriptions, your normal TV, fell 2%, 556 yeah, million. I know, it's overtaken it for the first time. It's massive news. It is. Massive news for us. It and 
I'll be the first to admit this is def- this is something I've really changed my opinion of. Mm. And I think I did look through rose-tinted glasses and have quite a romantic view of TV. Mm. And now I'm really, really quickly changing my opinion yeah. about linear TV's place within this landscape we're in at the I moment. And it can it can be quite confusing because they've been quite smart and um, their strongest case now is the fact that revenue is up. So their ad revenue is still increasing. They're mm. earning a lot more than other platforms. But um, while ad revenue is increasing, viewership is declining. Mm. So the mm. fact that their ads are getting more expensive isn't really signaling how many people are still watching. This was a, yes, this was something that we, uh, we, we've we both discussed that in life. This was a report as well from Ubiquity, Ubiquity sorry, uh, that came out uh, probably about the start of the year, I think, about January 2019. Mm. Um, and it was talking about this inflection point within advertising, which is by by the cost of reaching these audiences is going to become so high that, you know, the return that these brands are seeing is, is going to be completely yeah, yeah. so out of touch. So. One of the um, like big stories coming off the back of that is um, that YouTube is putting TV mm. like uh, front and centre if it's up front pitch this year. Um, so it'll be offering their YouTube TV ads as a standalone ad model for mm. media buyers. And obviously they're looking for um, like cheaper alternatives to TV campaigns mm. Um, mm. that can also reach audiences that linear TV can't. So YouTube is doing very well to fill that gap for them. And I think it could cause some real trouble for the traditional TV industry. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a sort of new reality that they've, they're have they having to face. And we've, you know, we've spoken to broadcasters before and the, the, the feeling for them, you know, and they're, they're very quick to admit that they are quite worried about what's going on. Yeah. Um, I've pulled some stats here from that ubiquity study, actually. It says, by 2020, the reduction in TV viewing will cut the amount of ads viewed by 16 to 24-year-olds and millennials, Gen Z, by 45%. Wow. And that is, what, three years, three years away. So, you know, it's, it's not just millenn- it's not just millennial and Gen Z argument. The same uh, applies to housewives and kids. It says 30% uh, will be cut the amount of ads that they see and 15% among adults from the three highest social economical brackets. Yeah. So in layman's terms, we're watching a lot less traditional TV, mm. which means we're being exposed to fewer ads. Mm. And that is causing this sort of inflection point where it's going to be so expensive to reach these people. And we've seen changes with stuff like addressable TV ads, which are due to be coming in, um, Mm -hmm. which is basically a sort of more sophisticated model of targeting your viewers on TV, which is, it seems like five years too late in a way, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're just just way too late to implement that technology. Mm. There's already like a lot uh, of other people that can do it a lot better than they can. We've jumped the gun a bit as well because the big one in the room is obviously Apple TV Plus has launched now. So this is a massive story. Um, And their launch was, uh, it was a couple of days ago from this podcast uh, being recorded and it was uh, massive stars. Steven Spielberg, Jennifer Aniston. Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. Oprah. Oprah. Yeah. These people all backing the Apple cast TV of, uh, Plus. Sesame Street. It's, it was a massive launch, and this is basically yeah. Apple's Apple's Netflix, I suppose you can call it. Can yeah, you? and they're definitely uh, stretching the purse strings. Mm, mm, because this has been a big argument, hasn't it? Yeah. Is that you know the 
is about is about attracting top talent, of course, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, and that's something that Facebook Watch has really failed to do. Mm. If you look at mm. the shows that they have compared to the shows that Apple TV is promoting, even the shows that YouTube Originals has mm. under their belt, like YouTube has all these amazing creators under their roster. Apple's paying for top tier celebrities. Facebook has MTV's The Real World. Yeah, yeah, I have to agree. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's mean videos and reruns of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's just not. Oh, it's not on the same level. Yeah, again, and uh, Facebook Watch, it's one of those where it's uh, it was built to be so great and it sort of launched in the US and it was quite slow coming worldwide into the UK and stuff. And it's true. I, I think Netflix and Amazon Prime, they still hold that crown, don't they? And mm -hmm. Apple TV eventually will do as well with, mm -hmm. you know, attracting uh, this talent. And I suppose... When you put that into context as well, in a way, it's, uh, you know, Netflix, they, they, you still don't see adverts on Netflix. And I yeah. suppose the revenue that comes through these subscription services, you don't need to. So, you know, advertising, TV advertising is in a very sort of strange place at the moment. It's, it's a bit mm -hmm. of an existential crisis that's going on. It's like, where, where, where are we going to be left with now? Because, you know, I can't imagine... Prime and Apple TV saying, oh, yeah, we're going to show ads as well for the time yeah. being, you know, because it's uh, we, we know they in ways they can hinder that viewing experience. TV ads as we know them, I suppose. Yeah, so. definitely. I'd be interested to see who comes out on top like with this race. I don't know if you heard, but um, I think it was a few days ago, it was earlier this week or late last week. But YouTube was rumoured to have cancelled all of its original shows. Mm. Um, I think it was a Bloomberg report, which YouTube has since come I've out and denied. This. Um, yeah, they, they said they were cancelling all their original shows and they weren't accepting pitches for new scripted shows. Um, but actually, they were just pausing one thing before they announced another thing, which is their uh, ad-supported model, which, mm -hmm. like I was saying mm -hmm. before, they'll be offering it to media buyers, uh, buyers as a standalone mm -hmm. ad spot. Mm -hmm. um, so they are still very much in the race, if not now more than ever. Um, and obviously Netflix and Hulu, they've now overtaken cable TV. Mm, You've got mm. uh, Apple TV Plus entering the scene and then Facebook Watch, however, like, behind it might be. They'll make it work, I'd be interested they? to see who comes out on top anyway, but I think there's one thing's for certain, it's not going to be linear TV. But I think you raise an interesting point as well. If you put, your, you put yourself in the uh, shoes of a brand who has seen all these news stories about YouTube and all the brand safety yeah, concerns that, that have come out. that is really need to fix. It's a real sort of, you know, you, you kind of know where you stand with TV. You know the content, you know the programming, it's going to yeah. come out. So Yeah, so they, 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 they are saying with this um this new ad spot for youtube originals they 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 won't just lump it on any relevant content they mm. will actually let the media buyers pick which shows to veto and what mm. not to veto so mm. that that's a, a step in the right direction but yeah people are still a bit wary understandably keen to obviously Britbox is another one brit so Britbox yeah. has launched so this is a sort of coming together between itv and the bbc yeah. and they're going to show you know showcase classic shows, classic British shows and, you know, emerging British talent as well. And yeah. I must admit, I think that is, I. it strikes me that there, you know, you look on Netflix and you look on these subscription channels and there is a big, big sort of waiting towards American programming. Yeah. It's sort of the same as TV, loads of our shows that, coming from America. That's why it's worth paying for it because, like, it's something that you wouldn't normally get on your channels. Mm, um, mm. It's like movies and, yeah, like shows from other countries and there's a huge variety of content. At the moment, I don't understand why someone would pay to watch BBC and ITV content yeah. when, first of all, I don't know what this will mean for iPlayer, actually, yeah. and the ITV hub because, first of all, you can watch it live. Yeah. You've got the channels yeah. for free already. Second of all, you can watch it on demand. 
Yeah. So yeah. I don't know why you would pay unless they're planning to offer something different. Maybe but there'll be exclusive shows on there, perhaps. Or... ITV is also um, partnered with Amazon Prime as well. Mm, I keep seeing mm. adverts for that. Um, yeah, maybe they're like aligning content. So I think ITV is uh, one of the broadcasters that is really trying to um, stay yeah, afloat, yeah. I guess. And at least they're aware of the dangers that online subs is posing to their yeah. business. I mean, they are established as well. You can't see Netflix coming for Coronation Street anytime. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. There is definitely a market for that. But, you know, we, we... we we can't get away from the fact that we millennials and Gen Z we are watching less traditional TV. Yeah, and that, like, uh, that that's true. the point. Like their their main audience is still around um, like thirty and forty mm. over. Mm. So things like Corey, mm. you know, they've they've grown up watching that, so they're always going to watch that. Of course, but they need to have young people interested now because if we don't grow up with something on their yeah. channels yeah. we're not going to be bothered about it when we're older so it's it, it, it will away. die out yeah yeah i completely agree um we've covered a lot of big topics today three massive topics um and now we've got some questions that i believe you put out on yeah. our instagram page to people yeah we've opened up the floor to the public said ask us anything we got some really interesting questions through um so thank you those who sent some in um so the first one uh, do Instagram hashtags affect the algorithm? I thought I thought that was really interesting because hashtags are um, one of those things where everyone who's maybe a bit new to social media marketing just assumes is a quick win or an mm, easy way for mm. your content to get seen more. Um, and to an extent, yes, hashtags can affect uh, how well your content does because it makes it more discoverable. Um, so obviously if you click a hashtag, um, if you're searching for something in particular mm. you'll, or mm. you'll search a hashtag, content uh, from people who you don't follow will mm. appear mm. Um, that's you know in line with that topic. Um, so it, yeah, it's a really good way of getting your content seen by other people. It's a good way of getting more engagement. And if you have more engagement, technically your post on Instagram will stay in the feed for longer, mm. but it doesn't really directly affect um, the algorithm. Um, so this is another thing, uh, a bit of myth busting. I think everyone thinks the algorithm is like, oh, this big monster that's mm. in control mm. of your content and how well it does. And, oh, it's like ranked number three on the feed and it'll yeah. stay like that for everyone. Um, it's not the case. Like you're... Um, your feed is dictated by what you interact I mean, with. With hashtags, my my sort of argument with hashtags is they still look a bit ugly, <laughs> to be honest, on yeah. the bottom of the bottom of posts. And I think hashtag hashtagging has definitely come a long way as well, hasn't it? It's uh, you know we've gone from sort of hashtagging a picture at the park to hashtag blue sky, hashtag park, hashtag this, hashtag grass, hashtag you yeah, know, and, and really categorising everything. I think like it is because people think that using loads of hashtags is going to change the algorithm in some way. But mm. at the end of the day, like it, it's dictated by the people who follow you. Um, so the success of your content depends entirely on their opinion of it, mm. which is why mm. it's always more important to uh, work on pleasing your audience and not just appeasing an algorithm. Mm. We'll move on. How can brands use TikTok? So we work very, very closely with TikTok, actually. And uh, this this is an interesting one because TikTok is, I, I love TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but I've seen, from the early days, we sort of did a bit of research around it and I wrote a few articles around it. Yeah. And it's become absolutely massive now. So, I mean, if you didn't know, TikTok originally came out of uh, China. It was owned by ByteDance. It still is owned by ByteDance, I should say. And it merged with Musical.ly, which was another platform, another very teen and youth-oriented platform. 
Now, the way TikTok works is there are it's a very short form platform. So think about mm. Vine as well. Um, it's the controls on it are absolutely incredible. What mm. you can do in terms of making content. So you know, everything from filters to special effects to it's like Frankenstein's Snapchat with Instagram with you mm. know with all of these. Best part of every platform is how I, I actually think quite like TikTok. You know, I think it's brilliant. I think the content on it's really really inventive. Anyway, get into a bit hashtag ad territory. Here. Yeah, I know. But um, how can brands use TikTok? So I mean. But it's still very new. Let's not yeah. forget that. And they have been implementing advertising. Yeah. And I think there will be an ad model on there. Yeah. It obviously makes sense. Yeah. Um, from experience, one of the early ways people have been using TikTok is through these hashtagged challenges. Yeah. I was going to say it's interesting. Almost like completely contrary to Instagram. Hashtags mm. are really important on TikTok. So, one, so, I mean, if we use a really, really ex early example, guest jeans, they had a sort of uh, in my jeans kind of challenge where people would kind of transform their, their look and like, you know, wear these jeans and the jeans would just completely like change their life and all that. I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of it. <laughs> so they do like it. a cut shot and it's like a boom, you're wearing the jeans. Exactly. Like, yes, you're wearing like big the music jeans. Reveal, yeah. yeah. So, I mean... For me, TikTok is all about brands that can inspire these sort of organic uh, challenges yeah. and people will pay to promote a hashtag or to uh, to put their name to a challenge. And then suddenly if that blows up, it goes worldwide, then yeah. of course, you know. So a really, a really good way. I know we've uh, worked with some influencers on TikTok before. Mm. So a really good way to leverage TikTok if you're a brand at the minute is to use influencers. Um, because it's a very growth-friendly platform at the mm, minute, almost like mm. like it's very. So they have um, like the the best of page, which mm. is like the the homepage that you see straight away, and it's really easy for people to get featured on that if they use a certain hashtag. Um, so people have found it really easy to grow. Um, so it's a really good spot for influencers, and if you can use them to sort of create one of these branded challenge mm. hashtags, mm. use influencers to kickstart that. Um, so it goes viral and then um, you've basically stand a chance of putting your content or your campaign in front of loads of Gen Zers. And they really push their creator community as well. I remember they're speaking to a really creator. Supportive. Yeah, I spoke to an influencer a, a, a while ago, uh, a girl called Vicky Banyan, and she was saying that, yeah, you know, the relationship they have at TikTok and, you know, it's completely like, is brilliant. They're really invested in growth and stuff. So like you said, I think the best way to do that is through uh, creators. Yeah. Um, I mean, as, it, as it gets more popular, I think they'll make the ad model um, a little bit more accessible because yes. it's not that accessible at the minute. But yes. yeah. Is the only way to grow a Facebook page to pay for ads? <laughs> so, I mean... The well, short answer, micro, well, yeah. yes, I suppose. Yeah, the, it's, short, uh, the short answer is yes. There's there's no two ways about it anymore, really, is there? Um, it's, yeah, it, it is, it's the only way to grow a Facebook page, definitely to pay for ads, but um, organic content still has a place. Mm -hmm, I will mm -hmm. say that because another really good way to grow a page or an account of any kind is to post consistently mm -hmm. and you can't be putting money into every single post that you do. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. The trick is choosing which ones to invest in and still having your organic BAU content on the side going out regularly um, and yeah, to save the investment for your big hitters, something mm -hmm. that you want to give it its best chance. It's a, it's, there's no two ways about it, is there? But Facebook has become a pay-to-play model. You yeah, know, we, we, we've come a long way from the 2015, 2016 when, you know, organic reach grown trees and it was all amazing, you know, yeah. and with very much money talks now, doesn't it? Yeah. And, uh, but 
there is an interesting thing to be said for groups, yeah. which is, which Facebook are pushing at the moment. Yeah. So we see a lot of people who have started like interest groups, especially in the social media uh, category. You know, there's uh, social media groups for people to share ideas. And it's that has become like, a real community in itself, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. I, I, groups at the minute are reminding me of how pages used to be. Yeah. So people yeah. are building these really highly engaged communities organically yeah. around a niche subject or like a passion point. And they're, they're seeing some really impressive numbers. Mm-hmm. Um Look at like Real, Lonely, Lonely Planet. Planet. For instance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Their, their Facebook group is massive, and that is all organic growth. It's doing extremely well. Technically, if your goal was to create a Facebook page that was successful, you could grow it in a Facebook group and take those numbers mm. once they're really engaged and invested mm. and move them over onto a page. But honestly, I, if you've already got a successful Facebook group, I wouldn't really see the point in, mm. in moving them over to a page. It's it's getting so many new features that it's not. Um, it's not that preferable to have a page. Yeah, really, yeah, at the exactly. Um, is it too late to become a media publisher? I think that sort of uh, ties in with a lot of that, doesn't yeah, it? As well, same, with, in being a yeah. in being a page. I mean, it's 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 never too late for anything, is it? Uh, no. It's just become a lot harder. And I think anybody who's you know trying to make a page now will tell you how hard it has become. Yeah. Yeah, um, you, you have to be extremely invested in more ways than one. You have to be willing to invest a hell of a lot of time, mm, a hell of a lot of mm. resource and a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The people who are dedicated and whose content, you know, does its job at being relatable, entertaining, valuable, um, you know, if if the talent deserves it and if they're willing to work at it, then no, it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is harder than ever. Yeah. So you have to really be willing to try at it. Yeah. It's not like it's not the case anymore where you can just be like, oh, I want to I want to grow a Facebook page. I want to be a media publisher. I want to start this business because I've seen other people have great success at it. It's been really lucrative for some people. Um, you know, it has to come from dare I say the word, a more authentic place. Yeah, I've, 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 I think it goes back to a lot of things. If if the only way you're doing something is for the financial gain within that field, yeah. you know, then it's, you've, yeah. you've, it's, it comes out of a real passion for it. And I think, you know, we could talk for our partners at Media Chain, the people who started pages like yeah. Hogwarts Logic and Sporth. Yeah. It came from even back then, when you know, when organic reach was, you know, at its yeah. highest state. It comes from an obsessive sort of need to do so. Yeah, so. 100%. And even like a lot of pages that started off well have, um, you know, suffered at the hand of the decline in organic reach and mm, and mm. how much harder it's gotten. Like you said, it's become such a pay-to-play model. A lot of pages have actually um, failed since, but I will give it to our friends at Media Chain. They've done really well at yes. adapting and keeping that mindset the entire way through so, yeah. so that um, you don't lose that. Exactly. I really like this last question, actually. Yeah, me uh, too. What, what skills do you recommend to work on along with digital marketing courses? I like this because it's like people um, people who have been listening and people who are sending in questions. Yeah. And, and like yeah. people who want to get into the industry. And I exactly. always say it's such a great industry to get into. Um, so skills that I would recommend doing alongside a digital marketing course depends on the kind of course that you're doing. So mine was uh, an apprenticeship, which did digital marketing and social media for business. And they try and give you as broad a range of skills as possible, um, especially if it's uh, like an early course. So you don't really know like which specialism you want mm, to go mm. into yet. So we covered um, things like videography, audio, um, there's content creation, 
um, analytics, mm. like the data mm. insight side of things, uh, copywriting, mm. um, and then things like SEO and PPC ads um, and paid mm. strategy. Mm. Um, so anything that you think would complement um, your your wider goal. Um, it's probably having a, a, a probably good idea to have a clue about what kind of specialism you want to go into, I'd say. I'd, I'd, yes, I, so I agree, but I'd also add to on. that. I mean, the, 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 the people we've spoken to across uh, this industry, these same themes crop up, don't they? It's people who have diversified. It's people who came yeah. into it through this way and yeah. then they found themselves, you know, uh, yeah. people who came into life as a journalist or a PR who are now working yeah. paid. Who, yeah. So I think you've just got to have an this appreciation industry, of all aspects of the industry. Yeah, this industry is like, so much about transferable skills yep. i think yeah if you if you can like jump in and because digital marketing is quite it is essentially just marketing on digital platforms mm. and marketing in itself is not um a specialism it's not a niche so if you want to be a general marketer you have to be able to yeah, do yeah, a few different things um what i will say is it's really important to have uh, a knowledge and an understanding of basic level marketing mm. so traditional mm. marketing um because something we always say is the actual rules haven't really changed. Um, the the concepts are still very much the same. It's all about reaching people where their attention is. Um, it's all about you know understanding the psychology of your audience and what they're interested in. That stuff hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is how we deliver those messages. So I would always recommend um, you know going back to basics and starting from there. I think I think as well just just to add to that as well the the, the focus is on big big ideas. Big ideas, innovation, and and that sort of openness, you know, be, yeah. be go where the attention is, you know, see where that's that's one thing we always mm. say. We we sort of we go where the attention is. It might be social today, it might be something else tomorrow. Yeah. So, you know, hit the books and um, you've 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 just got to go with with it. Really, you've got to diversify as much yeah. as possible. Be agile. You know, you can't if if agility be, is a skill, that's what you need to work you, on. You can't just be a copywriter nowadays, can you? No, you, you know can't. what I mean. Yeah. Add as many strings to your boat. Sounding very cliche now, but you know, arts and but also strategic thinking Another and all phrase. aspects. Yeah, jack of all trades. That's it exactly. <laughs> but a master of some. Yeah. <laughs> Right, we'll wrap up there. Yeah. Brilliant. Yes, enjoyed that. Thanks for another good episode. I know, yes. We'll be back again in a month or so, I'm sure. I hope you all enjoyed it as well. Super. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. <laughs>